The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that even as we sing about desire to be with you, that you have already acted to make that reality. You have already acted to make that reality in each day. And in particular times in each day, you draw near to us in in closer and in deeper intimacy. And then in each week, you give us opportunity to draw near to you in unique and in deeper ways. And all of that is a foreshadowing of a time when we will be with you forever, at rest, home. So what we long for, we long because you planted it in us. You've given us a taste, and we want more. And what we long for, you have already answered and provided for, secured for us, in fact. And so we say thank you for that, and we praise your name because it is all your doing. In the gospel, you made us your people, no longer fleeing from you, but drawn to you and longing for you. And in the gospel, you secured for us presence. Bless your holy name. And now, Lord, as we open up this passage this morning, would you please teach us? Spirit of God, would you take the truth of this passage? Would you press it into the minds and hearts of people here? Teach us. And teach us so that we can, in our lives now here, so that we can follow you into greater experience of you. into sweet, near intimacy with you and take up what you have provided us for that purpose. So teach us, perhaps, Lord, this morning we talk about Sabbath, teach us to think about something that maybe we don't think about at all, haven't haven't really considered or have discarded as confusing. Help us to think about it and to appreciate it and to follow you into capitalizing on it. In so doing, Lord, you would bless us with you in unique and in different ways. You would allow us another way to be with you. So please do that. Towards that end, give me clarity. Give me, give me clarity in what I say and how I say it clear away other things in the room or in our hearts and minds that would be distractions. Lord, if if there is sin that is a barrier to us as a people or us individually, would you clear that away now from us, mercifully remove it, lead us in repentance and in, in a cleansing forgiveness in this moment now. Would you speak, Lord? Would you make your word clear? Would you draw near? We look to you in hope. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
We turn our attention this morning to the beginning of Luke chapter 6, and as we've seen over the last several weeks, this section of Luke's gospel is addressing both discipleship and controversy. Discipleship, the, the idea seen here is that Jesus is calling people to follow him, and in so doing, he's expressing to us something about what it means to be a follower. There's discipleship going on here. And we're also seeing that in the process of him calling people to him, there are people that are hearing him speak who are disagreeing, or at least first start out curious and wondering and, and find questions generated. But then questions raised turned into accusations leveled. And as we saw, we progressed through it. By the end of, of today's passage, that we'll see Jesus' opponents are, are done thinking about it. They're done evaluating, and they reach a conclusion. They cast their vote, particularly the Pharisees and the scribes, cast their vote decisively against Jesus. They make up their minds, and they reject this new that Jesus brings. So we've seen followers called to him in rising opposition against him and his new ways. New, of course, comes from the very end of last chapter, chapter 5. Saw Jesus announce himself there as the bridegroom who, because he is present, has now finally brought in new, brought in, ultimately talking about the new covenant, brought in new ways. And he answers, he uses that to answer the question about fasting. Why doesn't he fast? Why doesn't he teach his disciples to fast? Because he's present. They'll fast when I'm gone. Fasting to express and then to actually experience a greater hunger for God. We talked about that last week. That gives way, though, to this passage this morning, another topic about new versus old, Jesus' new ways of dealing with the Sabbath versus the Pharisees' old ways. The height, the, kind of the pinnacle of controversy here. So we have two different events this morning. Both, they are related. They're put together because they're both about Sabbath. And as we look at them, what we're going to find is something about Jesus and then about what Jesus on authority teaches us about how to keep the Sabbath. So I'm going to read the passage. This is Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Pass back through it then to make sure that we understand the details before making two observations. Beginning here now, Luke chapter 6 in verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come, stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. 
And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Two stories. The first one, Jesus and his followers aren't doing anything special. They're just walking and being hungry. They, they plucked and ate some heads of grain raw. They just rubbed it in their hands to knock the husks off the individual kernels. And the Pharisees, who have been suspicious of Jesus for a while now, either they are watching him or they're having others watch him, and they hear this reported to them. And they confront, accuse Jesus and his followers, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And that word lawful or permissible, it's kind of a key word throughout both of these stories, that which is according to the law. So it's a little bit more than just allowed, but what does the law say should be? What's according to the law? They accuse Jesus of doing something contrary to what God requires on the Sabbath, rest and do no work which is a bit up for debate. Maybe you've read something somewhere. People discuss back and forth, arguing, evaluating whether or not what Jesus and his disciples did actually was contrary to God's law or just contrary to the Pharisees' application of God's law. Go back and forth discussing what harvesting is and what processing grain is, etc. The whole point being in the end to defend Jesus from actually breaking the law. That's, that's the goal. And it's hard to know exactly it's hard to know exactly what he did and exactly where that stood in relation to the law but all that really is beside the point because when jesus answers them he basically grants their point for the sake of argument he compares himself and his actions so himself and his actions to david and his actions david and david's apparent unlawful actions and Jesus and his apparent unlawful actions. That's the comparison. David, back in the story, 1 Samuel chapter 21, perhaps you remember we preached through that some time back. David, at the point that Jesus is referring to, has already been anointed king, but he's not yet been enthroned king. He's still serving King Saul, who's trying to kill him. And so David now flees for his life, and first place he goes is to the presence of God at the tabernacle, that mobile house of God before the temple was built. He runs to the presence of God at the tabernacle and asks the priest there for food. He'd fled in such haste, he didn't have any provision with him for himself or for the men who were going to join him. He says the priest, the high priest, who is depicted as a righteous man in the scripture, do you have anything to eat? And, important point, the high priest says, I have no bread other than the special holy bread, which only the priests are allowed to eat, as Jesus points out. Why don't you take that? And David, the man after God's own heart, King David, takes and eats that bread. And the text is fine with it. You guys remember that story? That's what Jesus is saying. Remember that story? Which, of course, they did, because there were discussions back then that day. How is that? They couldn't quite figure out how that was. Different people had different theories. Jesus says, remember that story? Which, of course, they do. Well, think about that. That should tell you something about how to read the law. How David read the law. He read it another way. And now add to this, one greater than David is here. Lord of the Sabbath is the Son of Man. 
In the original language, that word Lord is front-loaded for emphasis, and Son of Man is at the end. Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. So, that's the second time now we've seen Son of Man. Last chapter, Jesus called himself the Son of Man, saying he has authority on earth to forgive sins, and then he made a paralytic walk. And now he says, why am I doing that which is unlawful? Well, think about David and what he did that appeared unlawful, and think about this. I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. I'm the Son of Man who is in charge. That's the hinge. That's right here at the end of the first story, leading into the second story. Right between these two. Leads us then to consider the next event, also on a Sabbath. The details here are pretty clear. Jesus is in a synagogue. He's teaching. There's a man with a withered hand, perhaps paralyzed and atrophied. He doesn't really say. Somehow he has a right hand, important right hand, that is disabled. And there are Pharisees there lying in wait for him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And he knows this and instigates a confrontation. Pulls the guy out, and he asks him an important question, which is really a statement, and then he heals him with a word. Which takes us to verse 11 and the ending of the controversy section. Filled with fury. These guys are beside themselves with anger, in blind rage. He healed a paralytic to prove he has the right to forgive sin. And he healed a man on the Sabbath to prove he has the right to do with the Sabbath what he thinks he should do with the Sabbath and to tell us what we should do with the Sabbath. And they don't see any of it, but filled with blind rage, begin to plot what they can do to him. Such is the bias and prejudice of people who are losing control of themselves and of their little worlds. That's the passage. From which I'm going to make two observations, one drawn primarily from the first and one drawn primarily from the second story. Pull them together in a larger main idea at the end. So here's the first observation. Jesus has authority to clarify the Sabbath commandment. Jesus has authority to clarify the Sabbath commandment. We see this point displayed in the actions of Jesus, but most particularly in that one sentence in verse 5. Front-loaded for, for emphasis, rhetorical punch there. He puts Lord, he puts authority front and center. But he builds up to it by mentioning David. And while we're not going to preach 1 Samuel again, we're going to skip a bunch of the details from back then, we do need to kind of think about that a little bit because he brings David up to make a point. So we've we got to consider that a little bit. That story in 1 Samuel is not explicitly a story about Sabbath, never mentioned. So what's the connection? Well, the connection runs along two lines, person and action. So there's David and Jesus, and then there's the two apparent unlawful actions. Those are, those are the comparison points. They each act in a way that seems contrary to the law. And I say seems and apparent to point out something. Was it or was it not 
against God's law for David and his men to eat the holy bread of the sanctuary back in Samuel. Was it or was it not? Unlawful. Technically, by the letter of the law, yes, it was unlawful. That's supposed to be eaten by the priests and their family. David's not of the right family, so technically he shouldn't eat it. But skipping all the details of of 1 Samuel, and if you want to consider that more, you can look on the website. I preached this passage some time back. But skipping all those details, the relevant point for Jesus is this. Both the priest, this good high priest, and David understand something more about God's law regarding this bread. They understand something more than the letter of the law. They get that, they know that, and they understand there is such a thing as spirit of the law. They both know that. This giving of the bread to David, it does not follow the literal letter of the law, but it is in keeping with the spirit of the law. The high priest and David, the Lord's anointed king David, they both think so, and the text signals it. So think, this is not just what could be, it's what's right. These two men realize that to keep the law in that situation, in that passage, for them to keep the law involves them, apparently, breaking it. Contradiction, contradiction. What, 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 what? No, no, no. They have to keep the spirit of the law, which means they're going to have to look past the letter and understand what's God really after in this. Now, how they work that out in 1 Samuel is is not important for us this morning. Again, we can refer to that some other time. But the point is, they both understand. David understands, the priest understands, the Old Testament text understands there is letter and there is spirit of the law. That's the first reason Jesus brings that up. And the second, and the most important one, is that two men, and particular, particularly David, decide what the spirit of the law is and keep that And then, wow, this must be an important point. (laughs) Better get it right. (laughs) Two men, two men, important, official, significant men, but men, understand there is such a thing as spirit of the law, and this is what it is, and then they keep it. The text approves. Well, there is such a thing as spirit of the law, and I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. There's the connection. They're both saying, in both stories, we've got men who act on the spirit and do right. There is such a thing as acting in the spirit, and I'm more than man. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. So what I say the spirit of this law is, is right. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. If David could properly interpret that, how much more the author of the law can properly interpret what I meant 
when I gave it. That's the connection, why he refers back. He's arguing, in a sense, from lesser to greater. If we see this in the Old Testament, on David's authority, well, I'm more than David. I'm more than David. I not only have authority on earth to forgive sin, like I told you last chapter, but I have authority on earth to tell you what to do with the Sabbath. You Pharisees, you don't tell me what to do with the Sabbath. I tell you what to do with the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. That's Luke's emphasis in the first story here. Other Gospels, if you read that account, and of course you, you're probably familiar that it's in other Gospel accounts, and other Gospel writers add in different sentences and different statements in that story. Luke doesn't. Luke leaves it all focusing on Jesus, on the person of Jesus. Some of the things the other authors are after, he gets at in the second story, which we'll come to. But in the first story, the punchline is, Lord of the Sabbath, me. Jesus says. That's in keeping with Luke's thread here as he's been gradually, bit by bit, leading us readers, leading us on to evaluate Jesus. He's slowly kind of opening the window on Jesus and showing us, this is who Jesus is. What do you think? By the end of the story, the Pharisees have made up their mind, what do you think? We have seen Luke gradually opening the window. He is a uniquely conceived child a very bright, very godly-oriented youngster. And then when he comes into his adulthood, he is the one full of the Spirit upon whom the Spirit rests permanently. He is the one who brings in the, the jubilee of the Lord, his great deliverance. He is the one who is full of compassion and in authority heals people of their ailments and casts out demons who afflict them. He is the one who in authority speaks and teaches about the kingdom of God with the very words of God off his lips. He is the one who renders people clean before God, the one who forgives sin and heals to prove it. And now he is the one who, with the authority of God, tells us what the fourth commandment means. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, and of everything. What do you do with them? What do you do with them? For some of you, that question that I, I, I lay it in front of you, and I want to press it on you and ask you, what do you do with him from this moment on into your eternity? Remember what we're looking at here. We're looking at a document of fact. Luke has written this book to a, a Roman official who knew the details and knew people who knew the details. And Luke is writing to him with little ability to deceive him, let alone motive, to reassure him of what he has heard. Luke's writing a history, an orderly account of what happened. This is not a story. Jesus said these things. Jesus did these things. And Jesus presents himself to you now as the window is gradually opening as a man who is, who is 
one of remarkable power and remarkable compassion, and it's been moving along. Forgiveness, cleansing, Lord. It's laid in front of you. What do you do with him? Consideration and, and thinking about it and evaluating it is, is good and important and right, but perpetual consideration is a verdict against and leaves you outside of this Lord's forgiveness and this Lord's cleansing and this Lord's rest and on the wrong side of this Lord's judgment. It is laid in front of you, and I plead with you, do not, please do not, for your own good, do not slip into blind anger like the Pharisees who saw it all and set it aside because their worlds were being toppled. Let your world be toppled for your own good. Here is a Lord who is a Savior full of compassion and mercy. He is not an idea. He is God. This is not an offer. It is a command. Turn to Him. Not a command from me. It's a command from Him Himself turn, repent, believe, and be saved. I recognize that, that there are some here who have not done that, and I plead with you, but there are most of us here who have. And, and I put the same thing in front of us. We have to recognize that what we're talking about here is Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, and particularly, this lordship of Jesus is applied to this Sabbath issue because, this is for us, what he's about to do is they, therefore say then, and as the Lord of the Sabbath, I'm going to tell you what you have to do. What, I'm hoping, what I hope to be able to say is what you get to do. But what you have to do with the fourth commandment. That one didn't go away. The fourth commandment is still the fourth commandment. And he's going to tell us as Lord what we have to get to do with the Sabbath. He's the Lord. So, so he, before we get there, be, be willing to listen to him and to trust him. Because it might be Sabbath, frankly, for us, for many of us, I won't say all, but for many of us, Sabbath is an issue that we don't think about a lot. Or, if we do think about it, it gets confusing, so we set it aside. He's going to come and tell us what we do with the Sabbath, and it's possible that that might kind of wreck, with your, usual, wreck your usual schedule. It might mess with like how you usually do life. And so at the front end here, we've got to be willing to say, Lord, teach me for my good. Teach me about the Sabbath. Your Lord, what should I do? Well, here's what he says. Second observation. On the authority of Jesus, we are to keep the Sabbath holy by using it to give life. On the authority of Jesus, we are to keep the Sabbath holy by using it to give life. And I'm saying give life 
As we'll see, Jesus says, save life. But I'm, I'm changing that word there, and I want to make you aware. I'm changing a word there to try to keep us from accidentally misunderstanding. Because sometimes when we hear the word save, we think only about something about becoming a Christian. And it's bigger than that. So that's why I'm using the word give life rather than save life. But of course, I, where I get that is what Jesus says in verse 9. So let's look at that. Verse 9. When Jesus calls out the man with the withered hand and stands him in front of everybody, he knows what's going on, and he asks the crowd, and particularly the Pharisees and scribes, an important question that is very deliberate, very intentional, very looking for a showdown sort of question. He knows they're there, and he also knows this man is there with this hand that could wait. We don't exactly know what the situation is with the man's hand, but we know it's on a crisis. It could wait till a few hours till sundown. It could wait till tomorrow. He doesn't need to do this now. He doesn't need to do it in public in front of everybody. He could do it five minutes from now out back. But he deliberately says to him, come up here in front of everybody so that everybody can see this. I ask you, is it lawful? Are we supposed to, on the Sabbath, do good or harm? Save life or destroy? He says, with the man standing right there. An interesting question, because on one level, of course, everybody already agrees with him. The law does not require us to harm. We're supposed to save life, of course, to do good, sure. There were already, everybody already agreed, there were a whole bunch of things that people could do on the Sabbath that were related to saving life. Midwives, for instance, could operate on the, on the Sabbath, sure. Doctors and other people could help with some sort of an accident crisis. People could haul their injured animals out of wells. I mean, people could do a whole bunch of things related to saving life. So sure, everybody agrees, we are supposed to save life, to do good on the Sabbath. But on another level, everybody's uncomfortable because they know what Jesus is about to do. He's about to claim that the healing of this hand is akin to doing good and saving life, and the opposite of it, not healing the hand, is akin to the opposite, harming and destroying. And that doesn't make any sense because his life is not in danger. Clearly, this could wait. And we're not going to actually harm him. We're just, going to, we're just going to leave things as they are for a little while. We're not afflicting. We're leaving alone. And there is no crisis here. So this is not the same, Jesus. So yeah, we agree with you, but we disagree with what you're going to do. We've got a problem here. What's he saying? He's going to draw out the spirit and not just the letter of the Sabbath law and the fourth commandment, which shouldn't surprise us. If we think about what we know of Jesus' teaching on the other commandments, he consistently addresses the spirit and not just the letter. You have heard that it is said, you shall not kill. Well, literally, for sure, yep, don't murder, uh-huh. But that also includes... Anger and insults, too. 
that also is included in the spirit of that commandment. And you cannot keep the commandment while angering, in anger and insulting. That just leaves you liable for the fire of hell. You can kill by insulting. That's not letter of the law. That's spirit of the law. That's what he says. So no surprise that the Lord of the Sabbath is going to talk about the spirit of the Sabbath law. And that he thinks of saving life as more than just the literal saving of literal life. He means something more that's going to include restoring, renewing, fixing this man's hand. That's because of what the Sabbath is, actually. If I want to keep the Sabbath law, I need to understand what the Sabbath is. Where does it come from? It's important. It comes from the seventh day of creation. On the seventh day, God created six days that have a start and a finish, a start and a finish, and the seventh day, differently, doesn't. The seventh day has no end. Picture there is a day of God's rest. And this is before the fall. A day of God's rest after he has made, has made, has made, and now all that he has made is very good. And what we have there in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, what we have there is God and mankind together in a perfect perfect place, a very good creation without sin, in perfect communion with one another, and in perfect delight in everything else that's there because it is all shot through with the glory of God. And so mankind then responds towards God in perfect worship and in perfect delight in Him forever. That seventh day, perpetual great wholeness and great unity and great peace everywhere you look. It is the shalom, the peace, wholeness, and rest of God with people, the seventh day. And sin, next chapter, wrecked that for us. But it's coming back. There is and always has been a coming great day of rest. The eternal rest. Sabbath for us with him forever is coming. It was and it's coming. And until then, God's creation and God's decree, his law, all sets up for us little Sabbaths. Little days of rest every week. He didn't just like say it once, he said it repeatedly. Every week, every seventh year, and every seventh, seventh year, the Jubilee. Repeatedly, we are called away from our normal work, called out from what we usually do to something different, to enjoy a taste of God's Sabbath on this day or in this year 
like it was and like it will be, God's people in those moments freed from cursed labor, freed from eking out our existence by the sweat of our brow, freed from pain, freed from not, not all suffering, not all difficulty, but, but freed from some of it, from as much as we can get away from, freed from that and into a communing with him and an enjoying of him and each other. This is a little taste that God wrote it into our regular rhythms of life, a little taste sampled and, and sipped shalom, if you will. That's what God requires of us in the fourth commandment. Not because he needs it, but because we do. It's a gift, not a burden. He says, keep this day, this year, keep this day holy to me, set apart from the ordinary to me. Don't make it common like all the other days of the week. Give yourself and give others time and space to be saved out of burden and the life of death and saved into the life that is life, saved into my presence uniquely and specially today. You've got to return to that tomorrow, but not today. Today you get to taste what one day will be forever. Come and rest. Take Sabbath. And that mangled hand does not belong in the kingdom. It is not a part of that day. And so it's appropriate to take care of it today if I can. To save out from curse into blessing. That's why he heals him. So this is what I'm trying to build here for us for understanding is an understanding of what Sabbath was in God's mind, what the commandment is about, and then the next step, the authoritative ruler of the Sabbath tells us then, here in the New Testament, speaking to the church, this is what is lawful. This is what is supposed to be done on the Sabbath. Save life. Do good. Or as I put it, to keep us away from just thinking about salvation, give space for the experiencing of life. That's the spirit of the law. And we must keep the fourth commandment by making that day holy, special, unique, set apart for the purpose of giving life on it, giving life with it. That's the spirit. And if you think about that, you should look at that and see in it a great testimony of the love of God for us in Christ. Think about that. He did not give you Sabbath 
so as to stop you from doing everything that you really want to do, make you sit down and do nothing. I read, I read a book, or actually listened to a book on tape some years back. It was written from a child's perspective about life in another time in America. And in one piece of the book, he describes the pain of Sabbath. Because after church and after the meal, he had to come home and sit in the parlor until dark. And he was released to go to bed. Because this is the day of rest. <laughs> Praise be the name of the Lord. the love of God to give us Sabbath because that's not what Sabbath is. Sabbath is, is a gift to us. And Jesus does something here very intentionally. Jesus deliberately does something that he knows is going to lead everybody who's watching to fury and plotting his death. Luke ends this by saying what they might do to Jesus. Matthew's more explicit, how they might destroy him. The Pharisees are done after this. And Jesus knows full well that's going to happen. And he says, I am so concerned not to heal this guy's hand. I could heal this guy's hand in a couple hours. That's not my goal. My goal is to free the Sabbath from the letter to give them the Sabbath in the Spirit. To give them, to give them, to give you the Sabbath in the Spirit and not lead you to sit in the parlor like this, but to live and to experience life. Jesus writes his own death warrant and signs it. Here you guys go, slides it across the table. That's the price I'm willing to pay to set them free to experience life. What does that remind you of? There's a foreshadow here of how Jesus always works with his beloved ones. He signs his death warrant to set us free to give us life, to bring us into the rest of God. That's who he is. He's willing to lay down his life to bring you shalom. Here in this day, as a foretaste of and as a pointer to that day. Behold the love of God in this. You have to, you get to, keep the Sabbath because Jesus was willing to write off his life for you. What a tragedy it is that we fill the Sabbath with so much football. I put it like that to invite you to think. Not to start a list about what things one can and can't do on the Sabbath. I invite you to think about something. Because in saying, too bad we fill it with football, and then saying, I'm not going to write a list, right there, we just bring up the two great problems that we have with Sabbath. The two major errors that are most common. Either we tend to treat the Sabbath as common, like any other day, 
maybe with church thrown in in the morning, or maybe not if the game's on early or if I'd rather go camping. Just another weekend day. And so we end up keeping the nine commandments as if there were only nine. That's the one. I'm not going to write any lists, and because I'm afraid of any lists, I'm not going to do anything. It's just like another Saturday. And the other, less common today, but expressed by that kid sitting in the parlor, that's the extreme we probably fear, to turn Sabbath into a list of what I can't do on Sunday, so extensive that it becomes burdensome. Both of those approaches, though they seem totally different, don't they seem completely different, in the end, they need to hear the same thing. They need to hear what is lawful on the Sabbath is to do the good of saving life. What's lawful on the Sabbath is to give life. That's what God requires. And what Jesus assures us can be found. So can I watch football or not? Maybe. Maybe not. All I can say is this. Sabbath is not just another day. It's a day for you to stop your usual struggle against the world in jobs and in chores and work and in labor and in faith, set all that aside until tomorrow. In faith, believing that the Lord reigns over it and will hold it, will tend to it without you, will keep it, will provide for you, will meet your needs, will prepare you for tomorrow. You don't have to get it to... No, set aside and trust him with it tomorrow. Pull away from the normal. Pull away from the common struggle. And we do so to have time for the experiencing of and the giving to others of Sabbath rest life. Corporate worship certainly be included in that. As would extended personal time with God, reading, singing, praying, you yourself, or with others. Extended time interacting with the body of Christ to love and to bless them. Sure. What I mean by that, uh, love and blessing, what I mean by that is encourage them to look to Christ, encourage them to remember Christ, encourage them to believe the gospel, encourage them to look at the other six days through the lens of this day. And the fact that this day is a foretaste of the future and the other days are passing. And an extended time with others too, non-believers, to help them perhaps taste the life of shalom, to meet the kingdom in you as you rest. And maybe somewhere in that, what that means is that you should watch a football game with them. And maybe it means you shouldn't. There's no list. Maybe you should take a nap, or you shouldn't. 
You should read the paper, or you shouldn't. You should weed the garden, or you shouldn't. What gives kingdom life? What brings about, what realizes in you, in those around you, in the larger body of Christ, and in others, not in the body of Christ, what realizes in those concentric circles a saving of yourself out from curse and troubled world and into glorious rest, presence of God? What helps that? Do that. He uniquely gave you a day to do that. I hear often people, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. And we all say that, but, but some of us, it's perhaps a little more honest. I'm so busy, I'm running, I'm running, I'm running, I'm running, I'm running. And, and what I want to suggest to you is that at great cost, Jesus requires you, allows you, requires you to set all that aside for a day and not run. <sighs> Have you ever been in a situation at work where you feel like, I've got a ton of work, I've got a ton of work, I've got a ton of work, and the boss says, go home. I can't, i got too much work. No, I said, go home. The work will be here tomorrow, next week. Go home. A boss that says that is sometimes a, a, a wonderful person. Because <laughs> it gives you permission to say, okay, well, on your authority then, I'm trusting the work that you're in charge of to be here on my desk in your work center when I come back. And so I'm, I'm good to leave it. I'm responsible to leave it. Right, that's a good thing. On the authority of Jesus, he's telling you the work that he's responsible for can be left on the desk, it'll be there tomorrow. Go rest. Leave the world of curse and labor and come into the presence of God. Whew. Sabbath, a required blessing. So you pull this together. At great cost, Jesus has given us the Sabbath. Use it. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.